Amen. Well, again, this was uh, some week. And Friday's decision, of course, will continue to have historic implications throughout our culture as we walk through those implications in the foreseeable future. And again, we live in New Jersey. Abortion is very legal. New Jersey is one of the most liberal states in the nation. We know that. We walk through that every day. It's probably safe to say that the people and the world around us, right, disagree with us. The tide has officially turned long, long time ago. Christians are no longer the cool kids, right? People have turned against, they've culturally turned against the church, they've culturally turned against God's word, God's law, all of that. So what do we do when, notice I said when, when people disagree with us? When we have to defend the faith. And I'm glad you asked. Because we are at week number two of a three-week mini-series on just that, defending the faith. We're exploring this topic by looking at the apologetic methods of three men in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and next week we'll do Peter. Last week we looked at Jesus. We saw that Jesus presented a contextualized, a compassionate and compelling apologetic, and of course we need to as well. Jesus asked those context questions. Jesus was compassionate towards the lost. And Jesus made a compelling defense of the truth and invited men to respond. So should we, church. This week, we're going to look at the apologetics of the Apostle Paul, diving into Romans 1 as Piero read for us. Romans written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, written to Christians. Paul, a man who was once an enemy and a persecutor of the church, who became its biggest champion. How? Paul, originally named Saul, was a Pharisee and an expert in the law, ferocious in his adherence to the law of God, a Pharisee. Paul went from being an enforcer of the law to a persecutor of the new church of Jesus Christ. Acts 8, the book before Romans, tells us point blank how Paul used to live his life Saul, at that time, was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He despised Christianity. He wanted to stamp it out. He despised the church of Jesus until he became a part of it. How? What caused this 180-degree turnaround? Well, of course, his own conversion to Christianity caused that. And it might be wise to state here that if we're going to defend the faith, you need to have the faith. You can't be defending a faith that you don't have, okay? Some people like to get into arguments, okay? That's fine, but, well, maybe not. Don't get into arguments just for the sake of getting into arguments. But in order to defend the faith, you have to have the faith. You have to be regenerated. You have to actually have been converted. We can feel passionately about these things, but we remember this is from a heart full of faith. We can't try to defend a faith we don't actually have. The same Holy Spirit should empower us to live lives for Christ has to first change our souls before we can then go and proclaim the truth and defend the faith. And that's what we see with the Apostle Paul. That's what happened. His soul, his life was transformed by the gospel. And he went in 180 degree turnaround from being a persecutor of the church to being its biggest proponent and evangelist and a man who wrote most of the New Testament. Paul's converted in spectacular fashion, you may remember, literally being knocked off his horse by the risen Christ. In Acts 9, 
We can read that later. After which he was personally commissioned as an apostle, and we see that in Romans 1.1. He says, Paul, back then you, you put your name there first, so they knew who was writing the letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There is his commissioning. That's why he is an apostle. He was sent directly by Jesus Christ. He engaged others by defending the faith with wit, intelligence, and wisdom. All the while, while planting churches, pastoring churches, dealing with all of the stuff of churches throughout Asia Minor and beyond. And, oh, as we mentioned, yeah, writing most of the New Testament, too, in his letters. Through this, Paul also demonstrated an apologetic that was contextualized, compassionate, and compelling. Let's jump in and see what Paul has to tell us this morning. And from the jump, we can see that Paul's mission is clear. He was sent by Jesus, our text tells us, to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And he does so in a very contextualized way. Just a refresher on what context means. It means we don't change the message, but we change how it's delivered. Right? right now we are sitting in a contextual environment. They are not worshiping this way in China. They are not worshiping this way in Africa. Right? They are not worshiping this way in other churches, maybe even close to us or in another country, whatever that might be. We are contextualized, but we never change the message in that. Look again. Paul, servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul immediately grounds his defense of the faith where? In the bedrock of Scripture. Immediately in the Old Testament, specifically Israel, saying, hey, this is what's supposed to happen. We know that the faith is true. What I'm telling you, I'm defending the faith that is true. Why? We look at Jesus, and how do we know about Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one whom the Old Testament pointed to. One commentator writes that Paul contends that Jesus is the true Son of God. He is the true Israel. The Old Testament promises regarding the vindication of Israel have been fulfilled in and through him. The promise of a Davidic king and a Messiah also applies to Jesus. Paul adds another dimension to his context. After the Old Testament, he makes a contextual argument and he refers to the believers themselves. Look at verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his, his name among the nations, including, watch this, you, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What's the second area of context Paul uses? The church, you guys. How do we know the faith is true? How am I going to defend the church? Well, look at you guys. Look at the transformed lives of individuals. Look at what the gospel has done in the hearts and minds of everyone who has believed our own context of what God has done in our own lives. And that, folks, if we, if we get stuck when we're talking about the faith, if we get stuck talking about evangelism, trying to share Christ, there are a few things more powerful than we can share than what Jesus Christ has done for you. What Jesus Christ has done to transform you, to bring you from death to life, to bring you from being an enemy of God, to be seated at his table, to be a friend, to be a son, a daughter. 
But Paul also makes a beeline for one more huge contextual apologetic, which is creation, which is anyone and everyone's immediate context. Like right now, we look outside. Paul says, you want to know how I'm going to defend the faith? He says, look around you. Look at verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that all anyone needs to know to know that there's a God and there needs to be a way for us to be reconciled to this God is to walk outside, to see the beauty and the complexity and the power of nature. It screams that there's a creator, a designer. This is what theologians call the general revelation or natural theology where people learn that God exists from the things that are made. God proclaiming his existence through the things that have been made. And notice something very, very important in these verses. He said it's plain to them. He said it's plain. He says it has been clearly perceived. Men, philosophers throughout the ages, like Hume or whoever else in his ilk, have said, well, we can't really know things for sure. It's a complete collision course with the Bible. It says, no, we can know things. As a matter of fact, it is, it is clear. It is plain. God exists, of which there can be no doubt. Look at creation. And he goes on to say, so that they are without excuse. That's so powerful, church. No one will be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, wow, you really do exist. I didn't know that. He says, I gave you all of creation. I gave you all of creation to point to me. This just didn't happen by itself. It takes a heck of a lot more faith to believe this all just happened by random chance. Or if you read Dawkins' God Delusion, not random chance, but billions and billions of years of natural selection, which doesn't answer the question that's the most important question at all. In just a few verses, we can see that Paul here is presenting a highly contextualized apologetic here in the defense of the faith. He grounds it in the legitimacy of the Old Testament. He grounds it in the lives of the people that he's writing to. And he grounds it in the context of creation. All of that should say there's a rational context to all of this. Paul's presenting a rational case for this. And I'll say it this way. Defending the faith includes presenting a rational context. Marx called religion the opium of the people, meaning that religion is just emotions. It's just drugs. It's something to give them to distract them and keep them comfortable, to comfort the unintelligent. Midweek, this past week, R.C. Sproul, we finished up our giants of the faith with what a giant of the faith it was. And he tells of this brief interaction in one of his books, he says, there was a dialogue between a priest and a scientist. The scientist remarked acidly, you give me your faith and I will give you my reason. And this glib exchange underscores the widespread assumption in our day that reason and faith are incompatible and antithetical. Faith is viewed as subjective, emotive quality, leaned on by the weak or the uneducated. But at its core, Christianity is rational. 
You see, do, do we not feel that today? It's like, it's the classic like Greek dualism, two-story, whatever you want to say, right? It's, it's that, well, the things of the earth are here, and these are facts. And then you have facts, and, but then everything else is feelings and subjectivity, and, and, and religion belongs up there, where the warm, fuzzy feelings are, and Jesus is my boyfriend, the smoke and the lasers and all of that stuff, right? And Paul says, no, no, it's a rational context. Honestly, the Christian evangelical church has done precious little to combat this unintelligent, this anti-rational. We see it all the time. And what the world cannot understand is how Christians can seem to check their brains at the door and just live on blind faith and emotion. And the reality is that's not the apologetic that the Bible presents. And Paul gives reasons to defend his faith. The witness of Scripture, the transformation of people, the majesty and complexity of creation itself. For far too long, Christians have grounded their reasoning in what? Emotion. It makes me feel better. It comforts me in somehow. I have peace. I have joy. And Jesus makes me fulfilled. Now, those aren't awful reasons. But if we do that at the expense of reason and logic that God has also given us, then they are awful reasons. It's not just empty emotion. It's not just feelings. Maybe some of us have had doubts or, or questions in the past growing up, right? And you would go to an elder or you'd go to a pastor and you'd lay that big question on him, right? And you'd maybe get a little pat on the head that just says, just believe, just have faith. We don't know. That's so destructive. It's so damaging. That's called fideism. That's called just a blind leap of faith. Just take it. Just believe it. Don't question. Don't ask any of the hard questions. Don't question. Just believe it. The world sees that, church. The gig is up. <laughs> we have answers. They're in the Bible. Paul's pointing us to this apologetic. We have to do better than that. I want Highlands to be a place where we can ask those questions and we can look at these answers that the Bible has for us. Now, let's be clear. Culture will hate any reason that we give for the faith, right? Whatever we come up with, they're most of the time going to hate that as well. We don't want to think like, ha-ha, I've got the magic bullet. And then they're like, that's stupid. I hate that too, right? We, we, we want to be naive about this. But they can't say we're not rational. They can't say that we're trying, not, we're, we're, we're trying to ground this in scripture, which we are, which we need to. An atheist doesn't necessarily care that the defense of the faith is grounded in the context of the Old Testament or transformed life or creation. They may not care, and certainly not, of course, in creation, but they can counter those reasons. But like it or not, those are rational reasons. It might not be accepted, but church, we of all people have got to know why we believe what we believe. It's the whole point of this series and what we're doing. And we need to avoid the error of blind faith. It doesn't mean we have to be experts on every single opinion, right? And, and track everything down and have every counter argument nailed airtight. But we have to not be afraid of knowledge and not be afraid of those conversations. We see this again at its lowest level, the, the anti-knowledge that comes out in our maybe our own devotional lives. How much time do we spend as Christians getting after this? Just like maybe just relying on pure emotion. 
Instead of, no, I need to dig in. I need God to grow me in his word. I need to know the truth of his word. I need to know godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Always amazes me how we can be experts, myself included, on a million other things. But yet, the thing that is supposed to be the center of our lives, we can know so little about and be so mature about it, immature about it. We need to remember that our opponents will reject, but we need to press in with rational context. We need to remember that sometimes people are just going to have a straight-up presupposition that says, I will not believe no matter what you say. And we've got to be ready for that, but that doesn't mean our arguments are not rational. And this, again, gets us to the realization, church, that we don't save anybody. The danger with a series like this or uh, talking about apologetics is like, oh man, I'm just going to come up with the greatest defense in the world and on Thanksgiving dinner, I'm going to drop that one right between the gravy and the turkey and all my unsaved relatives are going to drop to their knees and become believers. And it doesn't work like that because it's not us that saves. It's Jesus that saves. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms people by giving them a new heart, new eyes, new life. And once again, Until that happens, we still need to defend the faith. But second, we need to do it with compassion. And we can hear the heart of Paul. Look at verse 8. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, and so I am eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome. Don't miss that. He's going to the church full of Christians to do what? Preach the gospel to them. Well, we don't need the gospel anymore. I said yes when I was in VBS from five years old, and I threw a stick in the fire and I signed the card. No, we never move past the gospel. How do we strengthen ourselves? The gospel. How do we arm up in the faith and defend? The gospel. How do we grow mature? The gospel. He's preaching the gospel to the church. Don't miss that. But you see his heart in here. He misses them. He's eager to see them. His love for them drives him to do what? Equip equip them to defend the faith. We covered this last week, but we got to hit it again. If we are simply engaging people with the facts and trying to counter their arguments without love, we've lost. We have to be compassionate. Love for God and love for others is the greatest and second greatest commandments in the Bible. We need to be compassionate, even if they reject Jesus. Why compassion? Two words. Paul says it in his his passage. God's wrath. We see Paul's compassion in his defense of the faith with an urgent warning because of impending wrath for sin. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and by unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For, in other words, because, this is why he's saying this, because we need to love them well, we need to speak the truth, we need to defend the faith. Why? Because God's wrath is real. 
and it's coming. And it's not only this, this in the Greek, it's present, active, indicative. It means it's, it's here and it's continuing to be. It's present. It is going to be ongoing, continuous action. So we see the wrath of God being revealed in our culture today in the lives of people who choose sin and the destruction that there is and natural evil and all of that stuff. We see that, but we're also going to see it one day when the Lord returns and then he will punish evil eternally. Why compassion? Because of God's wrath. Wrath of God for ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul says something even more revealing. People suppress the truth by their sin. This is the real ground zero of a rejection of God, of atheism. It's not just because someone doesn't believe or has doubts. Paul tells us that it's because they are suppressing the truth in their sin. They know God exists. They know it in their heart. He is king over all. They know that. They look outside. They see that. But they cling to being the king of their lives, and they shove the knowledge of God way down, deep in their souls. One author puts it like this. Atheism is not at all a consequence of intellectual doubts. Such doubts are mere symptoms of the root cause, which is moral rebellion. For the atheist, the missing ingredient is not evidence, but obedience. Let's say it this way. Defending the faith involves having compassion on those who refuse to submit to God. At the end of the day, people are refusing to submit to God, and we still have to have compassion on them. We can say it another way. Rejection of God is the whole reason the wrath of God exists. Other places in the New Testament are all over this. The book of Colossians in chapter 3 In 5 and 6, he says, Put to death, also the Apostle Paul, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, watch this, the wrath of God is coming. Author James Spiegel, in his very helpful little book, The Making of an Atheist, says, Atheism is the suppression of truth by wickedness. The cognitive consequence of immorality. In short, sin is the mother of unbelief. It's not just isolated unbelief. It's not just you're looking at it and yeah, no, I can't believe that. No, there's sin. There's the noetic effects of sin, as theologians call it, which is causing you, you're clinging to your sin and rejecting God. That's what that is. And what's the answer for sin? The gospel. Jesus Christ. We need a compassionate proclamation of the gospel, a compassionate defense of the faith, and thank God we have a compassionate Savior. Once they they realize the the suppression, the knowledge of God that everyone has, as Calvin called it, the, the census divinitatis, by their sin, they actually love their sin. That's why they're suppressing. I'm not gonna give up all of this. That's what that's what that is saying in their hearts. If I submit to God, if God exists and I submit to him, I have to do what he says. And that's not going to happen. That's what the heart is saying. Jesus himself says that this is out of a love of sin. If I could turn my pages, because it's so... Anybody cold? We'll turn down the air conditioning if you want us to a little bit. This is Jesus himself says... (laughs) Nehemiah, fun, new building, air conditioning. 
And I'm losing my place now. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. You see what Jesus is saying there? He says they're not going to come into the light. They come into the light, the spotlight's going to go on their sin and that's not going to happen. They don't want their, their sin to be exposed. They don't want to give up their sin. They love it. They love darkness more than light. They will reject it. How does this help us defend the faith? Well, first, we should not be afraid to defend the faith, even knowing full well it will be rejected by someone in rebellion against God. But overall, in defending the faith and ultimately sharing the gospel and evangelism, we must again remember that it's God himself that does the saving. We are the messengers. We are communicating through the power of the Holy Spirit the gospel of Jesus Christ, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will light it on fire and do something and save. But over, overall, we need to remember, of course, that's the point of engaging and defending the faith, is evangelism, is sharing the good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. Only God can remove those scales from people's eyes like he literally did with the Apostle Paul. This speaks to the power of prayer in defending the faith. We can and we should equip ourselves with knowledge, but defending the faith is not an intellectual battle. It's a spiritual war. It's a thin piece of ground for us to stand on, but we have to stand on it. We must have compassion for those who are stuck in willful rebellion against God. Do you see how weird that is? Like, like so much, even Twitter this morning, like, like my head was ready to, I don't know why I went on Twitter this morning, bad idea on the Lord's Day, right? But you, it's not just an intellectual battle. It's a spiritual war. And we have to, how do we have compassion on people that hate us? How do we have compassion on people that reject our Savior and think it's stupidity? But yet we have to. That's what we're called to do. And that is prayer, church. We said it last week again. Again, we say it. Do we love those who are lost in their sin? Do we love those trapped in the lie of homosexuality and gender dysphoria? Do we love those fighting for abortion rights? Do we love those trying to make our identity exclusively about ethnicity or race issues? We can feel passionately about these issues from a biblical foundation, and we must speak truth, but does it originate from a heart full of compassion? Make no mistake, it isn't a cry of evidence, right? Always, well, if I had enough evidence, I would believe. That's not just that kind of transaction. We've got to remember that. It's a cry of rebellion against God and disobedience. That's the root issue, and that's what we have to engage with. And we must not only be contextual and rational and have compassion for the lost, but we must be compelling as well. And that's where Paul goes next. One of the most compelling things that we can share is again, how Jesus transformed our lives. And Paul says that. Look at verse 16. Very familiar verse. I know I'm jumping around here. A little bit different of a sermon series. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is Paul saying this. Paul, the Pharisee Paul, who dragged Christians out of their homes, sent them to prison. Paul, who watched while they stoned Stephen to death. Paul, who would not even think of of being friends with anyone other than a Jew. He says it's the power of salvation for the Jew and also the Greek. This is Paul. This is a transformed life. That is a compelling apologetic. You've got to think, maybe for a second, some of his Pharisee buddies, whatever Pharisee association they were in, when Paul was converted, right? do you think for a second that they would say, wow, if Paul thought this is true, maybe I should think about this a little bit more. That's what we want. That's compelling. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Talk about the power of a transformed life. Now Paul went from a persecutor of the truth of the truth and the, the church to its biggest evangelist and proponent. Recall, in Philippians 3, if you ever want to know, Paul kind of goes on and on. I'm definitely going to rip a page here today. Philippians 3, look at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... Also, if anyone thinks that he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, that used to be me. Look at my my credentials. Look at my CV. This is where I was. Now what he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. You see that. That's the power of a transformed life. And the power is based on what does he say? The resurrected Jesus Christ. The power of his resurrection. In other words, church, no resurrection, no power. No resurrection, no transformation. No resurrection, no new life. Resurrection is non-negotiable. In Romans, uh, in verse 4 of our passage, he nails that, if you caught it back when we were reading that. In verse 4, he says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, watch this, by his resurrection from the dead. If Christ hasn't been resurrected, we should all pack it in and go back home where there's air conditioning. If Christ hasn't been resurrected, this is all for naught. He says, that's the power. That's the power of transformation. You want a compelling argument for for apologetics? Christ was dead and now he's alive. We also see that Paul is personally compelled to preach the gospel. Look at verse 14 in our passage in Romans. He says, I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel, not only to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 9.16, which he simply says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I have to. 
Paul is an example of a man compelled to defend the faith and preach the gospel. And we've got a lot to learn from the Apostle Paul, but I'll put it this way. Defending the faith involves being personally compelled to speak up. Defending the faith involves being personally compelled to speak up. Ah, yes, speaking up. I'm sure we have all had our opportunities to be on social media, to have those friends, to have those discussions. Do not engage. Do not, do not spend a million years on social media in the comment wars, please. It's a bad place to do that. Invite them out for a cup of coffee or something. Social media comments are not the greatest place to have a compelling discussion. But sometimes it's necessary. I have a pastor friend who uh, commented something about the verdict on, on Friday, and immediately he was jumped on by one of his atheist friends. And, you know, you have to respond. And he did, and he did a great job of responding and speaking the truth clearly. But you don't have to do it in a way that is mean and vindictive, and you don't have to keep going and going and going and going. Speak the truth. Be compelled to speak up. And if they want to keep talking about it, talk about it later. Don't do it on Facebook. There is a a, a stake we need to put in the sand that says, no, this is not who we are. This is not true. Hopefully we all have felt that pull, that voice inside us that says, I need to say something. And straight up, let's ask the question then, is this us? Do we feel personally compelled to speak up? There are at least two parts to this, right? First is courage. Do we just straight up lack the courage to speak up? It's tough, especially now. There's, there's big things on the line. We might get ridiculed. We might get unfriended. Things might get weird. These might be people in our own families. I suspect in full transparency, much like myself, we feel the tug of the Holy Spirit at that moment where you're just like, this is it. I got to say something. And we punt. I do it too. It happens to us all. And you feel guilty and you feel convicted because we remain silent. But another part of this church is maybe we lack the knowledge. Maybe we lack the experience. And again, I say, what are we doing to strengthen our biblical worldview? Instead of listening to the world, we're not going to get the biblical worldview on Fox News. We might get news, which could be debated, and I'm not going to go into that. But we're not going to get this. This is what we have to be experts in, church. This is what we have to be experts in. God's wisdom, biblical wisdom, not the world's wisdom. And so what do we do about it? Two things I'd say. First, pray. Pray, pray, pray. Pray for the opportunities. Pray for the Holy Spirit's compelling to be there. Pray for the right words to say once you get in those situations. Pray, pray, pray. And I would say also, second, arm up. Be fully equipped in your biblical worldview. This is the role of the church. This is hopefully what we're doing now. Equipping the saints, Ephesians 4, for the work of ministry so that you know how to answer. This is why we preach the way we do. This is why we have a midweek study about problems on Christianity. This is why we have care groups and relationships and things so we can sharpen each other. But pray, arm up, but third church, act. We simply have to speak up. The window is so small after someone drops a comment, we know that that's our moment. We got to go. It's our time to say something. 
the more we do it, here's what, the more we do it, the sharper we become at it, right? It feels weird when we're going to do it because we don't do it. It's just like evangelism or when we're, we're talking to someone about having a hard conversation with them. All those things feel weird. Why? Because don't, we don't do them. The more we practice them, now we're never going to feel like, you know, we shouldn't at least feel like, I got this. Guns blazing. I'm completely right. Everybody else just fear my truth. Here it comes. Like, we shouldn't be like that. But we should have more confidence. And that confidence comes through growing in knowledge and we act on it. The more we do it, the sharper we'll get. It's a way for us to grow. Watch this in our sanctification. Because God is using all things, even that moment where we're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do, but I feel like I should say something. God's using that to grow you more into the image of Jesus Christ. He wastes nothing, church. Nothing. This is the way we grow. We're being pushed outside our comfort zone. The need to have a contextualized, compassionate, and compelling defense of the faith is only going to be more and more increasing in the days ahead. We saw that this week in a hurry, didn't we? Are we ready? Do we know how to respond? Do we know how to grow and sharpen ourselves in this? Look at Paul. Look at his rational context. Don't be afraid of reason. The world acts like they are the ones who have cornered the market on common sense, and you Christians are just all unintelligent little emotional beings that are all cute over here playing church. No, they've not cornered the market on reason. Reason's from God. We get it too. Rational context. Don't be intimidated. Christianity is rational because our God is the very definition of reason and wisdom. Have compassion on those who are stuck in their sin, refusing to submit to God. This is difficult. Again, as we see more and more, what? Violent reactions against us. And people generally don't like being told they're sinners in the path of a wrathful God. But that's where compassion comes in, even in the faith of a willful rejection of the truth. And last, ask yourself the question, am I personally compelled enough to speak up? No doubt we all feel it. Do we act on it? What are we doing to sharpen ourselves? What are we doing to educate ourselves? What are we doing to deepen our biblical worldview? Are we spending enough time in prayer? Are we praying for the opportunities? Are we praying for the words? Are we most of all praying for him to transform the hearts of those that we engage with? And church, this week unmistakably pushed us into the spotlight. We will have more and more opportunities to defend the faith and speak the truth and life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is, how will we respond? Father, we are so thankful for your word. We see Paul. We see Jesus last week. We see hopefully the apostle Peter next week. We see, we see everywhere, every word in scripture breathed out by you is to be used for equipping the man of God for every good work. And so, Lord, let us become deeply knowledgeable about your word, not just for knowledge's sake, because we know knowledge puffs up, but let us link that, Lord, with compassion for the lost, with love for the lost. Lord, with also an understanding of the wrath of God and the beautiful promise that you offer in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Equip us, strengthen us, give us those opportunities. Protect us, protect today's choice, protect other pregnancy centers, Lord. They might be fruitful 
and engaging? And would the church shine more brightly than it ever has before? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.